come to the second week in our study uh, summer in the Psalms. One of the things that we didn't mention last week is that we are going to have the joy of sharing in this series, Camper and I, with uh, a number of different folks. Next week it'll be Jay Uten, and following week it'll be Matt Garrison. We gave Matt the tough one, the imprecatory Psalms, as a go sick him, but, you know, we figured Matt's ornery enough to pull that one off. But uh, And then throughout the summer we'll uh, be sharing, Camper and I will be back, but uh, we all have the delight of also learning uh, from, from our uh, others uh, as well. And so it's a great uh, privilege. This morning I want to invite you to turn to Psalm 22. As this morning we look at Psalm 22, we'll be dealing with what is probably the most difficult and uncomfortable subject in all of Scripture and probably the most difficult and uncomfortable subject in all of life. Because whether you are a Christian or whether you are from some other faith tradition or whether you have really no faith tradition or, or uh, definable faith at all, the problem of pain and suffering is universal. Inevitably, it impacts us all. I was reminded of playwright Tennessee Williams who said, don't look forward to the day you stop suffering because when that day comes, you'll know that you're dead. And in one sense, I think he's right. So the question is not whether or not you will suffer. The question is, how will you suffer? And how will you deal with the suffering that comes to you? It, it comes in a number of different forms. There is, certainly there's physical suffering, and some of you are experiencing uh, chronic or at least ongoing physical difficulties. Uh, there's financial suffering that creates other difficulties. There is emotional suffering. There's relational suffering. There's a different ways, and they impact us in, in, in different ways as well. And there's different reasons that suffering comes. Some of it is self-inflicted. Some of it happens because we are the victims or the objects of somebody else's uh, mistake or error or even sometimes their sin. And sometimes it doesn't seem to be a lot of reason at all. And that can be a very frustrating thing. But one thing we do know is that all of it, finds its roots, and all of it flows from the first disobedience all in the fall. And so the effects that we are experiencing suffering one way or the other all comes from that. Now, in Psalm 22, which we're going to look at this morning, we have from David an honest account of living in life and living with suffering. Because David speaks as one who has an understanding of who God is, and yet it's that very understanding of who God is that is creating frustration for him as he considers his own circumstance. Things just don't seem to be adding up the way that we would like to see them work out in our lives. And it's for that reason in particular that I wanted us to go through this summer in the Psalms, because I love the Psalms because they are very real and they are very raw. There is no pretense of super spirituality. These are people that are dealing with God in a very real, in a very passionate, in a very personal way, and apparently a very appropriate way because God has recorded their prayers, their praises, their laments, their complaints, and even their anger and anguish at times as they're speaking with God as a model for our prayer for our lives. And what we will find is this particular psalm that is great is that this is a psalm that Jesus was very familiar with. So as we look at this psalm, I'm going to read it in a moment. We're going to look at it in three different compartments. We'll begin first with the dilemma as, as David lays it out. Then we'll see his prayer. What is it that he's actually petitioning? And then we will finish with seeing our hope. But before we come to the word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Our Father, we do come praying that by the work of your Spirit, you would open our eyes and our hearts to the word that your Spirit has recorded. We may gain understanding. We may be opened up to be honest before you and perhaps even honest with ourselves. That we may find the hope that you promise and the joy that is offered and promised in fellowship with you that comes when we are in Christ. We pray that this word would speak to us and that it would point us to Jesus. For he himself is the word incarnated. Through him, we not only know you, we know what you are like. Bless us, Lord, through these words. And in this time, we worship you by offering our intellect, our ears, to listen to you speak. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They, they stare and gloat over me. And they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the afflicted, the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows 
I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The word of the Lord. May he bless us with it. Have you seen the movie The Count of Monte Cristo? And I recommend the movie because I usually avoid books that are thicker than dictionaries. But if you've seen the more recent movie, or if you've read the book, you probably know that the main character uh, in, in the movie, Edmond Dantes, is betrayed by a friend, sentenced to jail, and is in chains with prison chains. And there's a scene in that movie where the warden comes in to where Dantes is, is chained. And he comes in with a whip. And Dantes, knowing what's coming, groans, oh my God. To which the warden, in a very snide and, and cold way, retorts, God is not here. Dante's still with his faculties, both the mixture of the fear of what is coming and yet the conviction of his, of his own heart and his own life, he naively somewhat says, God is everywhere. To which the warden essentially says this, I'll tell you what, I'm going to start whipping you, and I'll stop when God shows up. And then as the cameras pan out, you can just hear Dante's cries as the warden mercilessly whips him and his cries echo throughout the whole prison. In Psalm 22, we have someone who's experiencing something of that sort, an anguish, a circumstance that seems unending an anguish that seems unendurable. One who is crying out to God, both with hope and hopelessness mixed together. One with expectation and yet a sense of aloneness. As we look at this, we break it down, we can see the dilemma as, the, as David is speaking. And he begins with what I'll say is his experience in verses one and two. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's essentially saying, look, my, my experience is, is painful. Where, where are you, God? And you can imagine him pondering in his, his own mind at the time. He says, look, I know you're everywhere. And I know you're powerful. And I know you're good. These are the things that I, I know about you. But when I think about those things, and, and here's my own experience, I have to ask, if you are everywhere, why don't you see what's going on here? And if you are powerful, why don't you stop my suffering? 
And if you're good, why don't you make this right? Maybe even concluding at that time that either you're not here or you're not able or you're not good. Any of those conclusions will break our spirits devastate our soul. He moves on, and as he's wrestling with his own experience, he then starts reminding himself of what he knows to be true of God. We see these in the, in the following verses. Picking up verse 3, he says, you are holy and you are enthroned in the praises of, of Israel. And essentially what he's saying here is, God, I, I know all of this theologically, and I know others have cried out to you before, my forefathers. They've cried out to you in the past, and you have delivered them, and yet I'm crying out here in the present, and you're not delivering me, and I don't understand this disconnect. My theology says that I can trust you, but my experience suggests to me that I've been abandoned. And then as he continues on, you can hear the words of depression that he speaks as he's thinking about himself. I mean, he's thinking about those who have been delivered, that have cried out in the past, his forefathers and all that God has done. And then as is prone when you are experiencing a sense of depression, you're looking at yourself and feeling that you are worthless. David describes himself, but I'm a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Here's the words of somebody who, as he's looking at himself and is feeling his own worthlessness and his own sense of aloneness and having been abandoned physically and emotionally and and spiritually. And he's wrestling with this and just essentially saying, to top it off, I'm being mocked. If if my circumstances aren't, aren't bad enough, while I'm struggling to keep my faith, there's people that are mocking me and mocking my faith, and it just makes it all the harder to trust. David's experiencing something that's very common. I don't know if you've experienced this or not. While there are people that are mocking, there are also people that are offering perhaps encouragements through their words of tidbits of theology. When we're experiencing that, it's not uncommon. When we're in the midst of suffering, it's not uncommon for well-intended other Christians to come and offer their theological tidbits. You know, God's sovereign in all things. Quote to you, Romans 8, 28. You know, God's working this out for your good. I don't know about you. I just want to smack someone when they say that to me in the midst of my suffering. I don't want to solve anything. I just, just want to smack them. Just somebody feel, what I, my, feel my pain. Now we can talk. Um, But as David is talking in this psalm, he's essentially saying, look, the theological tidbits, even the theology I know, that's no help. And then you have others on top of that just heaping on the mocking. And Verse 9, you see the conflict in David's own heart. He says, you were the one who took me from my womb, and you've made me trust me at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from birth. In other words, in this case, from the time of his birth and for us, for many, perhaps there's a time that you didn't know when you didn't know the Lord, that you've been a follower of Christ or at least part of the church. 
Others maybe came to faith later, but you still, after being promised that all of your troubles would go away if you would only follow Jesus, you find that you have the same kinds of troubles not only that you had before, but that are common to everybody, whether they're believers or not. And David is conflicted as he's, he's looking at this and just saying, look, you were with me from the beginning and I've always belonged to you and here I am vulnerable again. I'm in danger and I can't help myself and you seem so far away. It prompts David to the prayer. And those are the circumstances that he finds himself in, but then the prayer which we find in verses 11 through 21, and I won't read the verses again, but David essentially has two components of his prayer. The first component is, just be a little closer, Lord. We see that in verse 11, and again in verse 19. He says, be not far from me. In verses 20 and 21, he says, and deliver my soul. Now, whether he meant he figured that he was coming to the end and he just at least, if his physical body wouldn't be spared, that at least his soul would be made right and be able to rest in God for eternity, or whether he's saying my soul is in anguish and, and restore it and allow, restore joy in my inner being to uh, even in this life and that I, I might be able to delight in you but deliver my soul from uh, the anguish that I'm in. The prayer that David offers is really quite simple when you consider the detail of the anguish that he's writing. I mean, I would tend to expect some profound prayer like in the book that Annette is giving, has just gave to, given to the high school students that are graduating. I mean, deep, thoughtful reflections, a prayer of hope, acknowledgement, confession, but the hope and the, and the glory of God. And David's prayer, in one sense, if we look at the, what we consider prayer elements, are pretty simple. Lord, just be closer and deliver me. I suspect if we were honest that up to this point in the psalm is where most of us find ourselves when we are experiencing some form of suffering. You might say, God, I, I feel like this. I know this is true, but this is how I feel. There's just this, this great disconnect between what I know and what I'm experiencing, what I'm hoping for, and the hope that just seems to be ebbing away. We offer the same kind of prayer, Lord, help, Lord, deliver. We seem to kind of languish there until our, our circumstances change. In one sense, while it's depressing, it would be encouraging to realize that at least this is common to all. Even David, who's king, the man after God's own heart, expressing this, and if nothing else, misery loves company, or we realize there, there is hope even if we don't necessarily experience it. But what's important for us to also recognize at this point, the psalm goes off in an entirely different direction now. David begins to say some things which seem really strange that are related to the hope that he has even in the midst of his, his suffering and his difficulty. Because beginning in verse 22, he starts talking about praising God. And we don't have any indication that anything has changed. David declares, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear that. And he's encouraging others to begin praising the Lord. And he's making promises, saying the Lord has not despised nor abhorred those who are experiencing affliction. And he just continues, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. And so it's not even a matter of I will commit to this. He's just realizing that 
God who will give him the resources, the ability, and the desire to, to praise God in the sanctuary, in the midst of other believers. David is looking forward, and it seems rather odd when you consider what he's experiencing and anguishing. And the simplicity of the prayer that he offers. But there's a reason for the hope that David has that we need to recognize as well. Now, in one sense, we know in a way that David did not is that this is the psalm of Jesus. This is the psalm of the cross. This is what Jesus was meditating upon while he was on the cross. This is what Jesus quoted while he was on the cross. He was quoting from this psalm even while he was experiencing much of the description of what was taking place, that they were gambling for his clothes, that they were mocking him, and that it just the emotional anguish that he had. Jesus claimed this psalm as his own. New Testament scholars are almost in unanimous agreement that this is a clear picture of Jesus written hundreds of years before the cross. The focus that David has, in one sense, is on the coming Messiah that points our attention to the Messiah who has already come. But in particular, we understand that by the language that he uses in verse 31 when he wraps the entire thing up because he shifts gears and begins to praise God and encouraging other people to praise God, knowing other people have suffering, although he's not indicating any particular concern for other people to have suffering. He's engulfed in his own suffering at the time. But David knows what is common. David knows that others need to praise God as well. And the reason that he is able and the reason he's encouraging others to is because, in, in his words, what God has done. Verse 31, they shall come to proclaim his righteousness to a people not yet born. So he's talking about not even those who are his contemporaries, but people that will be praising God long after David has physically departed this earth. He's thinking of us and everybody who's come between us and everybody, us and David and everybody who will come after us until Christ's return. We'll be praising God because of what God has done. Now, in David's mind, it may simply be that he has re, remind, been reminded of the deliverance that God has given to his fathers, and the deliverance particularly, perhaps, in the, in the Passover that reminds it, uh, the people that it, it's not their goodness, but it's God's grace and the marking of the blood of the Lamb that would allow God to pass over uh, their sin, their iniquity, that God's not punishing people based on uh, the behavior but that he's embracing a people that belong to him, that are called by his name. We don't know. David doesn't give a great detail as to what specifics he's talking about, about what God has done. But I also believe very clearly that David's faith, as a man after God's own heart, was so interwrapped with the promises of God that when God declares something, it is as good as done, and he was believing on the promise of the Messiah who would come, even while we have the opportunity and the benefit of history to look back on that, because ultimately what God has done is sent his son, who embodied this psalm to take upon himself suffering that we need, should experience if it was uh, in this life because of our, our own sin in order to set us free 
from the greatest potential suffering we could have, which is the wrath of God being poured out upon us, at least as we deserve. David, as he focuses on what, he, what God has done, is focusing on something that God had promised, what God has done to show him already and points us to that. And one of the things that is significant about this particular statement, of what God has done, is that if you were to translate it from the Hebrew into the Greek, it is the exact same phrase as Jesus declared at the end of the cross, it is finished. It's the exact same phrase. So whatever David was looking at, you and I need to, in the midst of our suffering, look also at what God has done and what has been finished. And in that case, as Jesus gave his own life for hours, and Jesus declared that it is finished, he meant the mission that he came to accomplish to give his life for those who did not deserve it and yet whom the Father would grant the grace to believe, to trust in him, to be set free, to be reconciled to God, to be blessed, to be used, to be empowered. Never promised that we wouldn't suffer, but told that we would suffer in this life and yet promised that God would never leave us nor forsake us. Jesus said it is finished. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Is it finished? Or did Jesus just kind of get the ball rolling for us? Or maybe keep the ball rolling for us and leave us to finish whatever it is that we're able to do, stuff that he had not finished? I mean, that's the question that we need to, to wrestle with in, in, our, in our lives is to whether we really believe that it is finished. Or whether we think that somehow... Our actions will make up for whatever Jesus was not able to accomplish. The promise of the scripture is, it is finished. The sad reality of our lives is many of us live, including myself, as if we must finish. And we tend to do this perhaps most in the midst of suffering. It's when we tend to bargain with God. God, if you will deliver me, I will, we fill in the blank. We tend to anguish over our own weaknesses, frailties, and our sin. Not that those are bad things to be aware of, because we're called to be open before God, transparent, so that God would be at work within us. And we would be able to see how God has brought us along. We tend to search deep when the suffering doesn't end and assume that there's got to be something that we've done or something that we've left undone that is causing this suffering to the point that we drive ourselves deeper into anguish when we can't find the resolution. We can't find what that ingredient is that is causing the pain we're experiencing. When we're doing that, we are assuming that Jesus declaring it is finished didn't really mean it is finished. It just meant he was finished. Now, for some of you, particularly, perhaps if you are in the midst of some form of suffering, you might say, you know, that sounds nice, but that's really just theology. We've already seen David try to theologize while he's in the midst of his suffering, and it certainly didn't seem to bring him anguish. But we need to understand what the Lord is saying to us in this particular psalm. In one sense, the Lord is telling us this. He said, you may not know the why of your suffering, but you do know the reason that I died. 
And you may not understand, may not understand why. But you do know the reason that it cannot be. It cannot be because I don't love you. And it cannot be because I am mean. Because while we were God's enemies, while we were still enslaved to our sin, at that point is when he sent Christ to die for us, to reconcile us to himself, to demonstrate to us what love really looks like and the love that is so deep and rich that we can stand a lifetime and an eternity that we will still not fathom the depths of it. And that's important for us to be reminding ourselves in the midst of our suffering, even though we still may not come to an answer why. David's never given an answer why. But he's able to rejoice because he knows what it has done. He knows that it is finished. We know that it is finished as well. And that begins to strip off the things that we fear the most or the reasons that it cannot be. Because God has already proven to us that he loves us. He has not abandoned us. David's rejoicing even in the midst of his suffering because we serve a God who is not distant but who is near. A God who is so concerned about our suffering that we in one sense, one way or another, plunged ourselves into that he came down to experience it himself, to take it on us so that we do not experience the fullness of it. And he did this not only for us, but for peoples throughout the world in every generation. I don't know where you are in your suffering. And I don't know when you will suffer. But I do know that we need this perspective to be reminded that while suffering is common to us all, we either continue to plunge ourselves hopelessly into the depths of exploration and wondering merely what's next, or we turn our attention to the God, not only the theological truths of his ability, but what he has accomplished historically, and recognize and experience the love that enables us to experience a joy even in the midst of our own circumstances. I would love to declare to you that if you have the right ticket, the right formula, you won't experience suffering. Or you can take the right pill and then the suffering that we inevitably stumble upon will go away quickly. But that's not what God has told us. What God has told us and that we need to cling to is this. He loves us. He is aware he will deliver us. So even in the midst of difficulties, like David, we can actually respond to David as he's inviting us to also praise God in his sanctuary. If you are suffering and when you are suffering, turn to the cross to feel the love that is the objective reality in history rather than wallow in the subjective reality of how you feel about your circumstance. We've all experienced it. 
Circumstances don't change, but sometimes our attitude has. And the pain seems bearable or not that big of a deal. You know people, and perhaps you've even been in this circumstance where you were facing death, serious condition. When you came to a peace about it, your physical condition or your circumstances may still have been treacherous, but nevertheless, you had a peace and a joy. David is experiencing that here, and he's reminding us this is how, in the midst of our suffering, we should respond by turning our attention to what is true and undeniable and unbreakable. It is the love of God as demonstrated in the person of Christ. He is our hope, and his hope leads us to the joy and ultimately our deliverance. Let me pray. Our Father, as we come this morning, this is a, a difficult passage. And maybe even some ways not satisfying for some. Because we like our stories wrapped up nice and quickly. But I thank you in one sense that it is not so simple. Because our lives are not that simple. And thank you all the more of the example of one who in the midst of a suffering was able to have hope and even experience joy with no evidence that circumstance has changed. I pray that would be true for us, for all who you've gathered here today, all who are part of this congregation, all of your people, all peoples. Father, we pray that we would have that same perspective and to realize that in this life that is full of sorrows and suffering, we may still have joy. It may not make sense, but it is very real. It gives us hope. It delivers us the anguish of the moment, for no matter the circumstance, we know we are loved by the God who created all things. Bless us with this understanding. May it be contagious among us. That we would praise you. That you would be honored. Pray this all for the sake of Christ, with the hope that comes in Christ, and in the name of Christ.